In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to start this morning with a different passage of Scripture. Don't be worried, though, it's two verses. But the Samaritan people of the town refused to welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 54 and 55. Based on our three-year cycle of reading Scripture, you will never hear that read in church again. I'll come back to that story in a moment. One of my favorite pieces of contemporary slang is clapback. A clapback is basically a comeback or a retort, most likely pumped with attitude and sass. The term goes back to at least 2001 with Ja Rule's uh, rap track titled Clapback. It's the rhetorical backhand. That is the response you give when you have been insulted. The term is now mostly used in social media settings to describe when folks start trading insults with each other and the feuds come fast and furious. The concept of a clapback has been echoing through my head as I've had uh, this reading from our gospel uh, in my head over the past week. And we read the longer version. There was an optional part at the beginning, but I said, yeah, read all of it. Because there are at least three different clapbacks in our gospel lesson from today. The first was to the Pharisees. Jesus claps back at them over a matter of law, over the spirit of the law. Then Jesus claps back at his disciples because they don't understand what's going on. But my favorite part, is when a Canaanite woman claps back at Jesus. And this is important. She wins. She gets what she wants. The term, well, consider this scene. Jesus is walking along with the disciples, and then there is this woman who is misbehaving in three different ways. First, she's a Canaanite. Uh, Canaanites and the Jewish people did not get along. In fact, they had beef going back at least to the time of Moses and Joshua when the Hebrews forcibly conquered Canaanite land after the exodus and the wandering. Second, she's a woman yelling at a group of men. That's pretty transgressive at this point in history. And third, she's yelling at them from a distance. That's just rude. So it's not uncommon to ignore people who are breaking so many social customs at once. Jesus doesn't even address this woman until the disciples are annoyed enough to ask him to do something about it. When he does, first he says, essentially, I have nothing for you. I'm here for those of my religion, my nation. But she doesn't go away. She doesn't shrink back. She comes right up to Jesus and kneels at his feet, close enough to touch. She wasn't invited. She wasn't bid to do this when she asks him again for deliverance for her daughter. Jesus then makes a more pointed statement. 
Just a minute ago, he simply said who he was here to serve. Now he's going to tell her who he will exclude. So he answers, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. I need y'all to hear me. But more importantly, I need y'all to hear Jesus. Jesus just called this woman kneeling at his feet and begging on behalf of her daughter a dog. We have a derogatory term in our language for female dogs. We need to recognize that Jesus called this distraught mother kneeling at his feet our word for a female dog. Let that image sink in. Then comes the clapback. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She says, fine, I'm a dog. But sometimes people treat dogs nicely. I'm not sure what was in the woman's mind at this moment. Was it shame at being brought further down? Was it a willingness to shame Jesus into action? Was it sass or desperation? Was it both? I don't know. But it was enough to change Jesus' response. He is impressed with her faithfulness and heals her daughter, all while the disciples are standing there. And I wonder what was going through their minds. Now, there are two paths for interpreting this story at this point. The first is to ask whether Jesus changed his mind or repented of his own hard-heartedness. The text is silent on Jesus' internal monologue, and that is frustrating. We are so used to thinking that Jesus is perfect and sinless that the idea that Jesus would individually express the systemic sin all around him in the culture he inhabited leaves our theological constructs with a problem. By that, I mean that our understanding of Christ being a sinless, perfect sacrifice on the cross could be endangered by admitting that Jesus had to repent of something evil. But frankly, making Jesus' sinlessness obvious was not a concern for Matthew while he was writing this gospel. So we have this story that does nothing to make our theology neat and tidy. Thanks, Matthew. In any case, this interpretation means that Jesus learned not to be racist. And that is the turning point of the gospel at which Jesus knows that the gospel is for everyone and must be available to everyone, regardless of any human-made division. Jesus' mission will bring into reality the dream of Isaiah's prophecy we also read today that God's house will be a house of prayer for all and all are welcome to gather. The second, more traditional understanding and interpretation seeks to preserve Jesus' perfection, his sinlessness. And it does that by suggesting that the episode was just a test that Jesus was going to heal the daughter all along, but he had a point to prove. And it comes to the same conclusion, that the gospel is for everyone and must be available to everyone, regardless of any human-made divisions. But the traditional interpretation immediately raises a question. 
Who was being tested? Usually, people say the faith of the woman needed to be tested. But frankly, she seemed to have the faith bit locked down. She's the one bugging him relentlessly. Why test someone who is so obstinately seeking Jesus out because she is already convinced that Jesus can help her? So I'm going to go ahead, and for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume the traditional stance. Jesus is sinless, and in this case, he is testing someone. But he already knows he's going to help the woman. The woman seems faithful already. And I think that means we have to look at the disciples. There's a popular image of the disciples of Jesus as good-natured bumblers, salt-of-the-earth fishermen, fine people, if a little slow on the uptake as to what Jesus was laying down for them. But there's a pesky story that has never been far from my mind since I read it years ago, namely, that among the disciples there were at least two who had no issue with the idea of destroying all of the men and women and children of a village, all because the villages had heard about Jesus and they didn't want any trouble. In other words, the disciples had among their ranks a few who openly advocated for the genocide of a village of a different ethnic group because of a perceived offense. That's pretty far from a definition of good, fine people. The disciples, given even a little bit of power, are ready to commit ethnic cleansing. The culture they inhabited upheld these ethnic divisions. We see those divisions when the disciples want to destroy a village. We see it when they wish this foreign woman at Jesus' feet would just shut up. So if Jesus knew what was going on, and if he knew what he would do for the woman, that might mean he wanted to teach the disciples something in this interaction. And I suggest what he wanted them to witness was this moment when his message went from being one to Israel only and became something for everyone. And I think it was important that the disciples saw that change as a result of an impetuous woman's clapback. So here's a powerful man the Messiah, getting told off by a foreign woman in front of his followers, no less. And Jesus does not try to save face by reasserting his no. He acknowledges the justice and compassion of the woman's cause, and he relents. And that is amazing. Typically, when you're surrounded by your friends and someone comes at you, you don't back down. Not in front of your people. But Jesus did. And in that process, Jesus showed by example that the gifts of God's gracious reign are for everyone. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from the writing of this text. But by being in the stream of the Christian tradition, we may as well be standing around Jesus and the woman too. We've just listened to Jesus respond in a racist way to a woman and then change his tune. Our Lord and Savior got called out for his racism. And he accepted that. And he responded to the woman according to his racist social structure. But he then rewarded her faith with divine healing. 
And when he did that, he showed the disciples what it means to repent of the evil that surrounds them, and it surrounds us too. You can probably guess where this sermon is going next. We've reached the point in our national life where the KKK, neo-Nazis, and white nationalists feel free to take to the streets. This is not news to those of us who study hate groups that white supremacists have been telling us for the past eight years that their recruitment has increased, sometimes exponentially. The images of Charlottesville serve to convince that the groups may be exaggerating, but they aren't lying. Now, we sitting here may not claim racial superiority. If you do, I suggest you repent and return to the Lord. But there are a number of us who are in a position to either aid or abet racism or to challenge it. You see, I'm from Mobile, Alabama. My hometown has an infamously distinguished pedigree of institutionalized racism and Jim Crow. My hometown was the site of the last slave ship that ever came to the United States. And if you are sitting here and white, you probably know what I mean when I say that there are conversations that white folks will only have with other white folks. Nothing but my skin color grants me entrance to these conversations, and they are not pleasant. And these conversations make me a party to continuing a conspiracy of white supremacy that I want nothing to do with, but I cannot easily avoid. I'm going to give you an example. In 2002, I was starting my undergraduate degree, and I was hoping that after military service, I might find a career in the FBI or some other law enforcement organization. Sitting in my college recruiter's office, he looked at me and began the conversation that white men will only have with other white men. He said to me, Robert, you have two things going against you in this world. You are white and you are a man. You should consider taking a degree in finance instead of criminal justice. That way, you're more likely to be hired than those who take a degree in criminal justice. In a world in which women earn, at best, 77 cents for every dollar a man earns, and in which the poverty gap between whites and blacks is steadily increasing with black unemployment double that of white unemployment, I was shocked and frozen by what he said. For this man and many like him, any perceived loss of power is a threat. In this recruiter's office, I was being brought into a conspiracy to maintain supremacy over others. It was a wake-up call for me, and I always wondered what he told women and African Americans he counseled. And everyone who went to that college ended up in front of him at some point. Perhaps you've also known those conversations in the course of our work, our days, and our lives. We might find ourselves in a situation in which someone we speak to wants to know if we are a safe person to talk about keeping and maintaining supremacy, just as that college recruiter did to me. It comes in conversation, a sexist joke, an observation about how races are somehow different and do certain things a slang term for someone from a different country. When that happens, it is assumed that we agree. 
And we're essentially being asked if we are in the conspiracy of this world to keep these divisions in place. You know that you have a choice, an uncomfortable choice. Half-hearted agreement in the hope that the conversation shifts to something more pleasant or silence or a confrontation. The gospel passage today begs us to risk that confrontation. It may mean that we have to tell someone why we cannot participate in such a conversation. It may mean remembering aloud to the other person that our connection to God and our faith and to all of humankind renders racial divisions meaningless at least and malicious at best. And that can be a hard thing to say. My track record in this is not as good as I wish it was. And yet the imperative is there. Whether we are the ones who clap back at racism or have our ideals thrown right back in our face when our silence equals complicity. The good news is that we do not do this alone. We never have. The presence of God makes all things possible for those who face enormous odds. I promise I'm almost done. I want to go back to the disciples for a second. Well after this moment with the Canaanite woman, well after their desire to destroy a village, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and empowers them. Suddenly, they are baptizing Gentiles and coming to grips with this inclusive work of God. Then in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John and Philip go to Samaritan villages to preach the gospel and live in peace with the ones they would rather have seen killed. After Jesus ascends to heaven, the story of the early church is the story of recovering racists trying to keep up with an inclusive God as they get kicked in the pants by the Holy Spirit into situations and with people they would not have chosen on their own. That's the work God hands to us every day. Shall we get to it? Amen.